0: Well, I love to fish, and from the time I can remember as a child, I would always go fishing. Uh, Now, this uh, fishing pastime got serious in high school when I discovered a mountain stream in Tennessee coming out of the mountains that was abundant with rainbow and brown trout. Not only did that river provide the beauty of the Tennessee mountains, but it also provided the end of my line with some really good eating food. Rainbow trout. And so when that Saturday came, if I wasn't working in the yard, I was probably out trout fishing. So early in my marriage, I convinced Melody that she should take up trout fishing with me. We bought her some waders and a fly rod. I borrowed a float tube, and she was ready to go. Uh, By the way, uh, ladies, uh, if you want to win your man, uh, take up the things that he loves to do. Uh, So one Saturday, uh, Melody and I take off to the river for Melody's inaugural trout fishing adventure. Uh, We got up at 5 a.m., we drove up to the river, and we began suiting up. Uh, Now, the river that I fished was a TVA power-providing stream. And I'd called the night before to get the generator schedule. And and so Melody and I pull up, and here she is, uh, waders up to her chest, a float tube around her waist and fishing rod in hand. And so as we entered the river with Melody saying, how do I get in? I remember the sign that I I always walked right past. Warning, water may rise rapidly and without warning. I know now why they put that sign there. They decided to run two generators that day. And I remember feeling the current Pick up and yelling over to Melody, get out, get out. But of course, at the river, you could hear nothing. And so Melody didn't hear me. And so I, as the water began to come up, I worked my way over to the side and watched Melody. (laughs) When she saw me at the riverbank, she figured out pretty quickly what to do. And I spent the next 10 minutes praying hard. When we got out, I'll just say that we had a game-changing moment. (laughs) I know now that when my wife says she'll never do something again, she means it. (laughs) But I will say that she forgave me. We've all had our game-changing moments in life, haven't we? Some good, some not so good. Some we are proud of, some we are not so proud of. And many of these game-changing moments affect us deeply. Uh, For you, maybe it's a new relationship. Uh, Maybe it's a graduation, a marriage, or a new job. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Each time we experience them, we are forced to embrace change, uh, to release the old, and to welcome the new no matter how uncomfortable the new may be. Well, today we're going to look at two words that provide our final game changer. And these two words, I'll say, have changed the course of my life. And they will change the course of anyone's life who embraces them. They are the words, follow me. But be careful, because just like that river comes with a warning sign, These two words come with a warning sign that provides our bottom line today. Following Jesus is costly, but he's worth it. If you have a Bible today, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. That's where we're going to be focusing, but don't turn there quite yet. One of the reasons I love the Gospels is because each Gospel writer, whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John brilliantly gathers their information and arranges their information about Jesus. Uh, The gospel writers don't put stories together by chance. As a matter of fact, they do so with great intentionality, and they help us grasp the main idea. Uh, In the book of Matthew, the main idea is that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. And in order to prove this idea, Matthew grounds his proof from the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Uh, We can say that the main refrain that we see in Matthew all the way through the book is this, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And you can see all the references there. And that doesn't include all the allusions to the Old Testament that Matthew gives. And so even a cursory reading of Matthew will have you noticing this refrain. Matthew writes that Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophets, the Messiah, King of Israel. Now what's interesting about how Matthew introduces us to Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4 is that he summarizes the content of his message. He says... About Jesus' message. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he immediately shows Jesus calling people to follow him. And so, Jesus' message of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, immediately turns into the mission of his followers. Uh, This inextricable link between Jesus' message and his followers' mission is found in Matthew 4.19 in this phrase. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now notice that Jesus invites people to follow him. And then he tells them with great clarity exactly what's next. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, follow me. And I'll make you wealthy. Follow me, and I will enlighten you. Follow me, and I will make your life free of problems. Instead, Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, this is one of the reasons that I love the Wayside Chapel vision statement so much, and that. Uh, as I was candidating to come on staff here at Wayside Chapel, I will tell you today that the vision arrested me. As I think about the Wayside vision, that we are a community. We are a special church community of people. A community that is rooted in the Word of God. That lifts up high the Word of God. But that doesn't stay there. We're not only a community that is rooted in the word of God, but we are a community that because we're rooted in the word of God and because we're followers of Jesus, we are reaching out to our world, both personally and as a corporate body. And as a result of that, we are reproducing Christ followers. And so Matthew introduces Jesus's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and his method Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men in chapter 4. And there's no coincidence that he puts them together. And so Matthew then spends the next three chapters sharing the content of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of chapter 7, he tells us something very important about Jesus. It It says that Jesus was not just another teacher. Matthew puts it like this. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having a authority, not as their scribes. Matthew seven, twenty-eight and 29. Uh, take note for just a minute. Not as their scribes. And so when Jesus finishes the end of his sermon on the mount, he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And so after Jesus finishes the content of his teaching, he looks at his disciples and he intends for them to do it. Now, as we look at the book of Matthew and as we study the book of Matthew, one of the things that we learn about a disciple of Jesus is that a disciple is a learner. A disciple is someone who learns Jesus so that he can apply the teachings of Jesus to his life. But a cursory reading of Matthew wouldn't just make you think that a disciple is only a learner. A disciple is also a follower of Jesus because we see that as Jesus preaches his method, his message, Jesus calls people to follow him. But a disciple is also a reproducer of other disciples. A disciple who is someone who makes disciples of Jesus Christ and who teaches them to go and in turn make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we could say in a summary summary manner that a disciple is a learner, a follower, and a reproducer of Jesus Christ. And so you may ask, where's the costly part? Well, let's turn to our passage. Look at Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to be reading in verses 8 through 27. Uh, This passage in Matthew falls at the beginning of and within a greater passage of Matthew chapter 8 through 10. And it's in these chapters that Matthew presents us with an alternating pattern that looks like this. And I want you to look at the screen and notice this just for a moment. In in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew presents us with three miracles. And they're specifically three miracles of healing. And then Matthew gives us a picture of Jesus once again in conversation with somebody about following him, just like he has in Matthew chapter 4. And then in Matthew eight twenty-three through 9, 8, there's three more miracles. And those three miracles demonstrate the power and the authority that Jesus Christ had as the Messiah. And then after those three miracles of power, once again, we have this conversation about Jesus calling someone to follow him. And then there's three more miracles of restoration, and it shows that Jesus is uh, can restore people from the dead. And not only can he heal the sick, and not only does he have power over the wind and waves, but Jesus also has the power over death to restore the dead to life again. And so we see these three restorative miracles, and then Jesus commissions his disciples for the first time, and he says, go and make more disciples. And so as we look at Matthew 8, verses 18 to 27, I want you to remember that this is within the context of three miracles of healing that have just happened and within the context of Jesus then calling or having a conversation with others about following him. Now, in the context of any group of followers, you have varying levels of commitment. And so in this context, Matthew provides that warning sign, if you will, to his readers, Matthew 8, verses 18 through 20. Please excuse me, but I'll have to put my spectacles on this morning and actually open up my Bibles because I can't read that screen. <laughs> Matthew eight eighteen through 20. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The first thing that following Jesus will cost you is your cheap words. Here's a scribe. And remember chapter 7, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're told that Jesus taught with the authority, not as the scribes. And so immediately in Matthew chapter 8... Jesus is confronted with a scribe who gives him his cheap words. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, in turn, says this kind of odd statement about birds and foxes and the fact that he was, in effect, homeless. Now, a scribe, in the New Testament period, scribes were learned teachers and authoritative leaders. Uh, They were those who were drawn from the priests and the Levites, but they were also, by the New Testament time, drawn from the common people. Uh, Matthew presents these scribes as the learned of Judaism, leaders of community. And so it is clear from many witnesses that the scribes had authority because they had knowledge. Whatever level of government the scribes typically served in, they sought to preserve Judaism against people who challenged it like jesus and so notice here in this passage how jesus or how the uh scribe addresses jesus Uh, there's a lot of irony here because the scribe addresses jesus as teacher and yet the scribes were the teachers of their day Uh, jesus's response is interesting as well because this is the first time in the book of Matthew that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, as we look at this passage, it's interesting because we find in the Old Testament that in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is portrayed as one with regal authority, one who is godlike, one who is God Himself. The one who is the anointed one, the one who will rule, the one who will take over. And so you can imagine that this scribe saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you'll go, in his mind, doesn't have very far to go. Number one is a scribe, but number two as a scribe and understanding the Old Testament. That sure, he'll follow the man that is, has regal authority. He'll follow the man that can heal. He'll follow the man that has power. Yes, that's the easy man to follow. And so Jesus looks at the scribe and says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He tells the scribe that the son of man isn't just associated with the regal authority of God, but also with the suffering, humiliated people of God. Uh, what Jesus tells this scribe is that following me isn't just about the good life. And if anyone in the New Testament times had the good time life, it was the scribes. And so when we look at Matthew 18-20, 8, we see game-changing point number one in the message today, and that's this, that following Jesus will mean you have to put your words into action. You know, I haven't always done that in my life. a matter of fact, if there's anyone in this room who's offered cheap words to Jesus, I'll raise my hand and say, I'm the first person who has offered cheap words to Jesus. I've told Jesus in my life that I would do one thing or another and failed miserably time after time again because I was either too fearful, too prideful, or too arrogant to follow through with actually what I told Jesus that I would do. From the time that I was 18, I believed that Jesus had called me into full-time Christian ministry. And I remember asking one of our pastors uh, of our youth camp at the time when I was 18, I remember asking him, how do you know that you're called into ministry? And I remember what he said. He said, don't worry about it because if you're called, Jesus won't leave you alone. And sure enough, for the next 10 years, I told Jesus many things. But I'll tell you, for the next 10 years, from the time that I was 18 to the time that I was 28, Jesus did not leave me alone. I had all kinds of cheap words. And matter of fact, I told Jesus that I would follow him often. And so I would follow him into what I would want to follow him. And by the way, these were all great things in the church, such as singing in the choir, such as being a part of the ensemble, such as teaching. All these things were okay, but it wasn't my call to follow Jesus. All these things were to benefit his kingdom, but every time that I would draw near to Jesus, he would put that little follow me into ministry, into my mind and my heart. I've offered Jesus many cheap words, but there came a time in my life and when I was 28 years old that I decided that I wouldn't offer Jesus any cheap words anymore. I decided that I would have to put my words into action And so I launched out on this great adventure of ministry. And I'll tell you to this day, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is faithful, and he's been faithful to me from day one. And so the first thing that we have to do in following Jesus is put our words into action. Now let's look at the second thing. Read uh, Matthew 8:21 through 22. Now here's another disciple the Bible says that came to Jesus and he said to him, "Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father." And Jesus said to him, "Follow me and allow the dead to bury the dead." And so we have one disciple, a scribe, that comes to Jesus and Jesus has something to say about him in his cheap words. But now we have another disciple And the second thing that following Jesus will cost you is your big excuses. Here's another disciple, and he says, I'll follow, but wait. He addresses Jesus, Jesus, notice, not as teacher, but he addresses Jesus as Lord. And so the request in this Jewish context is quite legitimate, actually. Uh, certainly, a pious Jew would want to fulfill the fifth commandment and honor his mother and his father. He would want to uphold that fifth commandment, and more so, sons in that day would have ex- been expected to attend the burial of their parents. Interestingly enough, we have a similar circumstance in the Old Testament where Elijah calls Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. And when Elijah calls Elisha, Elisha is plowing with two oxen. And he comes and he puts his cloak on him, signifying and symbolizing that he was calling him out to come with him into ministry. And at that moment, Elisha looks at Elijah and says, let me go first. Take care of some things with my parents. And Elijah allows Elisha to go back. And to slaughter the oxen and to give a going-away party and a going-away feast for his upcoming ministry. Uh, But notice Jesus' response, and this response can basically be taken two ways. And for our purposes today, uh, we're not going to dissect it too much. But Jesus' response, on the one hand, either meant this. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Or it may have meant this, and this is probably more likely... Let that matter look after itself because you have more important things to do. Notice that Jesus' language is unqualifying here and unyielding. And notice here that Jesus' demands are greater than that of Elijah. Now why is that? Because Jesus was on earth, the Messiah who had come from heaven to earth in the incarnation. And Jesus Christ was on earth declaring that the kingdom of God is here which leads us to game-changing point number two following Jesus will mean you have to make him number one you know not only have I been a person in my lifetime who's offered Jesus cheap words one after the other uh, but I've also offered Jesus more big excuses than you could ever imagine Uh, From the time that I was 18 to 28, and even sometimes now today, I continue to offer Jesus big excuses. Uh, uh, For example, when God called me into ministry, I was a math major. I had written one or two papers in my whole lifetime. And the first thing that I wanted to tell Jesus when he said, you're going to become a pastor and somebody who teaches God's word, the first thing I wanted to tell him is, Lord, I'm a math guy, I can't write. Uh, The second thing I wanted to tell Jesus when he called me was, uh, Lord, uh, I can't read. I'm a slow reader. And so I knew I would have to read all this information and gather all this information, uh, not only from the Bible, but also from uh, commentary and extraneous books in seminary. And I told Jesus, Lord, I can't read. Lord, I can't write. Lord, I can't read. But here's... Another one that I told Jesus. Lord, my personality is not like that. See, I couldn't imagine myself being a pastor because it, growing up, I was the serious one in my family. I was the tender hearted one. I was always the one who cried when somebody looked at me funny. I wasn't the humorous one. And I thought all pastors had to be humorous and jovial, and they had to all come across with this certain personality type. But what I found out very quickly is that actually isn't true because Jesus' Jesus' eyes are roaming to and fro, searching for those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Lord, I can't write. Lord, I'm the quiet one. Lord, I'm the math guy. Lord, I'm not humorous and jovial. I had to come to a point in my life where I apply game-changing point number two, and that is that following Jesus will mean that you'll have to make him number one. Uh, Let's look in Matthew 8, 23 through 27, and let's look at the third thing that it will cost us. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Uh, Now notice, I want you to notice just for a moment that in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus had been Um, talking, and there was a crowd around him, it says, in 18. And notice it says he gave orders to depart from the other side, to the other side. Now, notice in 23, it says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And, And so we know here that this story is linked to the previous two incidents uh, it's almost as if Jesus is being pushed around by the crowds and he decides to go sail to the other side. And so as he's walking down to the boat to get in, this scribe comes to him and confronted him. And so very quickly and succinctly, Jesus tells him what he tells him. And then right then and there, uh, this other disciple comes and he confronts him. And Jesus very quickly and succinctly tells him exactly what we've just read. And so now Matthew continues the story. And he says, when Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him saying, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to him, why are you timid, you men of little faith? Uh, Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The third thing that we learn here in this passage that following Jesus will cost you is it will cost you your fears. It will cost you your fears. I know Jesus knew their fears, and in this case, it was an instance in which He challenged their faith. But have you ever hidden behind your fears? I know I have, and oftentimes when I am following Jesus, and I believe Jesus is calling me to say something or to do something. There's fear that will arise in my stomach, in my heart, in my mind. And I'll have a choice, and that is to pursue that fear or to act out of that fear or instead to act in faith and to live in faith. And in this case, the disciples did what came natural. Uh, If I were them and Jesus was in the boat sleeping and a big storm came up, I would do exactly the same thing, I believe. I have to think that I would. But Jesus is trying to teach them something in these moments. He's trying to teach them that if they're going to follow him, they're going to have to exercise faith in the person of who he is. You know, oftentimes... Our fears get the best of us. Uh, maybe it's a fear of change. I, I can't, Lord, uh, because all my family roots are here. And, and you know, Lord, uh, I, I'm fearful that, that things are going to have to change with my family if I follow you. Or, or, or Lord... Um, I can't because uh, I can't see the future. And and I don't know whether or not you're going to give me the money to go to seminary or or this or that. I'm just not sure, Lord. I can't see that far in front of me. And so I have a fear of the unknown. Or or maybe it's the fear of failure. Uh, Lord, I can't do that because I'm not sure I would ever be able to accomplish it, really. And so Jesus comes to us at that point and he says don't act on your fears instead act on your faith now, this is what he was showing the disciples in this case and it leads us to game changing point number three and that is that following jesus will mean you have to trade your fears for faith did you hear that following jesus will mean that you'll have to trade your fears for faith Uh, But the question is this, faith in what? Uh, Faith in what? Faith in the object of our faith, the man, Jesus Christ. It is faith in him. Uh, Notice what the disciples say in 827. And the men marveled saying, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? He's the kind of man that has uh, the power to heal. Uh, He's the kind of man that has authority over the wind and the waves. He's the kind of man that has power to raise the dead. That is our Jesus. That is the man that we place our faith in. You see, following Jesus will give you one thing that you won't get anywhere else. When we follow Jesus, we find that in exchange, we actually get him. We get him. And he, my friends, is enough. In his book, To Follow Him, Mark Bailey quotes a quote by Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, about this idea of having Jesus. He says this, We are overpowered by the grandeur of the Redeemer's goodness, by the splendor of his love, the infinity of his self-sacrifice. Jesus commands our faith by revelation of himself. He was so outspoken and yet so gentle, so courageous and yet so kind, so unflinching and yet so tender, wearing his heart upon his sleeve in the transparency of truth. But he was prudent and guarding himself with infallible wisdom, a match for all, however they might assail him. And yet, apparently, never on his guard at all. But as a child among them, the holy child, Jesus. Oh, if you sit at Jesus' feet, you will not only learn of him and his teaching, and his teaching will have power over you. And here it is. But you will learn him. For he himself is his own best lesson. A game-changing point number four. Jesus is worth it. And I can't remember a time in my life when I've stepped out in faith to follow Jesus in the will of God. That which I felt he was calling me to do, whether it be very, very small or whether it be very, very large to me. Uh, No matter what it was, how small or how large, there's never been a time that I can think of, not once, when Jesus has been unfaithful to me. Jesus is worth it because you get him and he is enough. So, my friends, let's follow Jesus. Let's know it's going to cost us something. Yes, Let's pray for Him to give us opportunities to go fishing. But let's remember that in the midst of no matter what happens in our lives as we step out in faith to follow Him, let's remember Jesus is worth it. Let us pray. Lord, I thank You that Your gospel writers didn't write things by happenstance, Uh, but Lord, they were carried by your spirit and moved to place things in their gospels exactly, exactly where you wanted them to place them so that we would understand, Lord, we would understand your message to us. Lord, I thank you for your message to us today. Lord, I thank you that your message also became your mission. And that you call us to fulfill it in faith by walking not apart from you, Lord, but walking with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness. Thank you for who you are. For you are our King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.